0: Michael, are you celebrating anything special today?
1: Only another Saturday here with you and our listeners.
0: That sounds like a very fine reason to enjoy the latest release from Veuve Clicquot. Its new vintage, La Grande Dame 2012, is delicious and it looks as good as it tastes, thanks to the iconic Japanese artist Yayoi Kusama, who created original artwork for the bottle.
1: Kusama's vibrant and cheerful design is an homage to the Grand Dame of Champagne, Madame Clicot, who took over the production of Maison Clicot champagne back in 1805 after her husband died.
0: It's a beautiful way to celebrate any and every occasion. La Grande Dame 2012, the newest vintage from Vave Clicot. happy saturday it's june 5th 2021 and you are with us right here on morning meeting i'm ashley baker the style editor of airmail
1: i'm michael haney one of the deputy editors here at airmail welcome to june welcome to the show
0: michael i've got my iced coffee do you have your espresso
1: i've got my drip coffee here i'm an old-fashioned guy ashley
0: Oh, fair enough. We're fully in the throes of summer over here, Michael. It's getting light at 542 in the morning. We're up at it and early and we've got lots to talk about today. First of all, I think we just need to be clear on the fact that we've got Los Angeles, Michael, with us, ladies and gentlemen. California Haney, as I like to call him. He has gotten on an airplane and crossed the country to see our good friends in Los Angeles. How is it, Michael?
1: All the leaves are brown and the sky is gray. It's great, but I have a confession, Ashley. I'm ready. I am so I have not traveled in the longest time. My whole travel game has fallen apart. I ended up packing like a fourteen year old girl going to summer camp. And I was the guy in the airport all of a sudden. I mean, that you would not want to be stuck behind in security. All that was basically missing was I might as well have had like a a purple neck pillow around my neck and setting off the alarm. It was just like I was all off my game. I felt like a complete amateur again. I was embarrassed for myself.
0: mean? I know you, Michael. I know you had the smartest Globetrotter luggage.
1: I just felt like I was like, I didn't know how to travel again. And I was all, well, maybe I need this. Maybe I should buy Uh, 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 and anyway, I just was, it was a good thing It's a good thing Brooke was not with me. Came out here solo because I would have been driving her crazy, and would.
0: Did you fly out of LaGuardia?
1: I flew out of JFK. Oh, which was empty.
0: Wow, you know the new LaGuardia is really fancy. That was one of my surprises of the pandemic when I flew out of it a couple months ago. I was like, wow, this is nice. They apparently they got some construction done while we were all grounded.
1: I know. I was there for my trip, and I came to Chicago, and feels like I was in one of those small European city. With like a beautiful new airport, everything was clean, modern, spacious cathedral ceilings with windows everywhere, right? It was and there was even like a strand bookshop in there. It's amazing.
0: And shake shacks on every corner, Michael. What more do you need? Exactly. I love it. So You're staying in Santa Monica.
1: Yes, I'm at the proper hotel.
0: How is it? It's proper. Do you like it? It's pretty new, right? I haven't been there yet.
1: I haven't left my room yet, but yes, it's pretty new and uh, it's lovely. Kelly Wurstler designed it. It's very on point for design aesthetic right now, what the kids like. I think it's really lovely. Very happy to be here.
0: Marvelous. All right. Go eat at John and Vinny's for me, please.
1: I will. But I think the point is today, morning meeting is literally coast to coast.
0: are coast to coast and international. Ladies and gentlemen, we're here wherever you need us to be. Well, Michael, on an international note, Paris is ready and waiting for tourists. Kind of, as Alexandra Marshall writes in this week's issue, c'est compliqué. Tell us more.
1: Well, this is a piece you edited, but I will I will be happy to open the discussion about it. It's called The City of Light Has Become, for some, the City of Blight. And there is a sort of hashtag going around in Paris on social media called Saccage Paris, with about 800,000 tweets and counting, where many people feel that Paris, over the course of the lockdown, has gotten a little dirtier, a little less beautiful. And And these people all are blaming it on the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, who was Paris's first woman mayor, but they say she's just not up to the job and that it's it just sort of saccage means sacking. They, they feel that Paris has devolved a little bit and their complaints revolve around. Some people feel like it's looking looking a little like New York in the 70s, not a little, little less clean and tidy than the Paris that we all sort of expect No, know, right?
0: I think it's important to say that this problem is not unique to Paris. We're seeing this kind of situation in every major city that's been really impacted by COVID. We're seeing it here in New York too. Everyone says New York looks like New York in the seventies, but I love the way Alex has this incredible, Alex always has such a smart insight onto what's really going on. And, and she, you know, she says that New Yorkers view urban blight almost with the kind of pride, if you can make it there, you'll make it anywhere. But Parisians have a different relationship to their city, which places a high value on its ability to charm, seduce, and impress. Paris is the center of every function of power in France. There's no partitioning like we know in America, no DC for politics or New York for media. So important is Paris to the rest of France that they don't even have a local police force, only a national one, because if it happens to Paris, it happens to France. And so she says, Paris is what Freud might call overdetermined. It always needs to be ready for its close-up. So this is really a matter of national pride here. And Hidalgo's future political ambitions could be considered to be in jeopardy because she has not exactly risen to the occasion.
1: Yeah, although it's funny, like, I mean, what the Parisians... And look, we all love Paris because it's picture perfect, right? It's, it's, it's always ready for its close-up. Right. But for some Parisians, what are they really said about that? They're, they've they put these new benches in some of the parks and they're not, for some of them, in line with like the old Oseman sort of benches. So they they feel there there have been some of these changes to the city. And which, I, like like I get it, it's a city that runs on aesthetics. But I also feel like there's a bit of a comical note. You know, I mean, the French also love to complain. So in this social media campaign they've got going with, the, with their hashtag. I can see the point. But like, but then the campaign, they plead for who to help spread the word the cast of emily in paris like what's that about
0: i love it it's so brilliant
1: what's that about come on everyone
0: what michael you like emily in paris it would work on you you would get outraged it's smart marketing
1: i guess so right
0: yeah maybe maybe we'll see but i love this story and i hope i have the opportunity to go to paris and see this saccage for myself
1: Gage.
0: saccage well shall we cross the channel my friend and talk about everything happening in London right now.
1: Yeah, we've got a boatload of stories out of London. Where do you want to begin?
0: Well, let's start with Rachel Johnson's piece. Now, Rachel, love you. This is not what I wanted to read you on this week. She's talking about the planning of the Queen's Jubilee. I wanted her to talk about her brother's wedding. Hello, this is the biggest news of the week, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, this. you have all the dirt on. So tell me, Boris, Bojo, got a little secret wedding over the weekend, right?
0: a little secret wedding. Managed to subvert the press on it too. People were caught totally off guard by this. And I believe he is the first PM to get married in office in quite some time. And there was a little teeny tiny little wedding. I assume Rachel was there, but she's being very discreet and not talking about it, at least not yet. So we'll continue to hold out hope. Instead, though, she does have a great piece in the issue about the planning of the Queen's Jubilee, which is next summer. And she's got some moles. So
1: the Elizabethan era, the second Elizabethan era, which is... The Queen is 95 years old now, and uh, she is now this year celebrating, she is now marking her 70th year on the throne, and she's the only monarch in British history to have served 70 years on the throne. So, this will be her platinum jubilee, which begins this June with a bank holiday or this weekend of uh, June 2nd here. But then the big marking will be next year, 2022, when if you remember in 2012, 10 uh, nine years ago, there was that was her sixtieth, and that was when they had that sort of whole procession down the Thames River on a very cold, dreary day. It was known as the Shiver on the River. So, this one is the, the planning is going ahead on it, and Ashley, as you know, she Rachel has some moles in Westminster and uh, the Palace. Talking about how the planning is going to proceed on this one, which will be quite different from what it was uh, nine, ten years ago, right?
0: Indeed, Charles has already started off the festivities by asking everyone to plant a tree in honor of the jubilee, and he cringingly is calling it a treebly. Probably treebly, treebly.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I think it's treebly, which makes no sense. But I'm all in favor of planting trees. But it's just don't try and make up new words that don't scan a tribble.
0: I think trembly, trebility, ability, tremble, tribal? Like what exactly are you trying to
1: do? Trembly would be if you're planting trees at Wembley. That would be trembly.
0: <laughs>
1: but this is not that.
0: I love it. I love it. So, moving on, let's let's talk about more pressing matters, Michael, more revealing ones, if you will. I can't believe we're going to go there, but we are we are going to talk about the revival of Naturism. I don't mean naturalism, Michael. I do not mean naturalism or environmentalism. I mean naturism.
1: You're, you're so European when you call it naturism. I'm just going to go like, right into the Americans. It's called nudists. Like there's a, and apparently, (laughs) apparently some people in lockdown lost more than their minds. They lost their clothes. (laughs) Specifically, it seems millennials have been embracing nudism and not just like, I'm I'm talking about the old fashioned, like nudist colonies. These are, as Flora Gill writes this week, everyone from, is now doing things like nude yoga and doing it on Zoom and this whole sort of trend even our good friend, Gwyneth Paltrow, when she turned 48, she took a vote of herself but about like, people wanting to embrace their bodies all the way, right? What, what's behind this, Ashley? Can you explain it to me?
0: I don't get it. I think people are bored. And Flora Gill writes about this in the issue this week. Flora is a very, very funny writer. She's the daughter of A.A. A. Gill. For those of you who remember his writing, I mean, talk about acerbic witty and on it um and flora reminds me of him in so many ways in terms of the way that she puts a piece together but uh she talks about how millennials have been stripping off as a way get this michael to reduce lockdown anxiety now in my case that would be a way to augment lockdown anxiety like i have no desire to see my naked body reflected back at me over zoom while i am doing a downward facing dog but apparently others do yeah so flora decides to take a week to challenge herself to be largely naked for a week. And she tries to get her boyfriend involved and he is not interested, but he is supportive of the idea of her spending a week naked in their home until he gets worried about the impact on the heating bill. Ha ha. Anyway, so she starts off with, of course, like the funniest possible thing, which is an online nude dance and drumming workout workout run by an organization called British Naturism. And she's perplexed by all these details. Like, do you start off wearing a robe or do you just log on totally naked? Uh, and she she joins a Zoom call and she finds 13 naked men eagerly following a naked woman as they dance and bang their wooden spoons together. And at first, it's she finds this ratio of more males and females to be a little bit disconcerting, but then more females join. They all squat and stretch to the music. She's feeling like she gets a good workout in. Then she tries naked yoga. She is really conflicted about where to position the camera. Probably not from behind, maybe not from the front. So she decides to do it from the side. And by the end, she decides she kind of likes this. She's into it. It's making her feel confident. She's feeling good about life. So I, I think Flora and I are just fundamentally different in terms of our approaches towards nudity. Like you're likely to see me at the beach wearing swim leggings and a long-sleeved rash guard. But so that's where we're at. Maybe, Michael, maybe I, we should do this It's just a means of Personal
1: growth. Oh boy. Yeah. You're talking, you're talking to the most repressed person you're ever gonna meet, actually. So I don't I don't really know.
0: <laughs> Michael, that's probably why you need it more than anyone. <laughs> Ask Brooke. Yes. Ask Brooke how she feels about this.
1: Yeah, I don't think you're gonna find us at a naturalist camp anytime soon.
0: Way too worried about getting a sunburn. No thanks.
1: Yeah. Or ticks. Although it's easier to spot the ticks that way.
0: Yeah, well, there you go. Advantages.
1: Yeah, tick check for everyone. <laughs>
0: Let's take a break for a brief lesson in the history of Champagne. Michael, what can you tell me about Madame Clicquot? Funny
1: you should ask. She was one of the original innovators in the realm of Champagne. All the way back in 1805, she took the reins of Maison Clicquot following the death of her husband. She was a risk taker and completely uncompromising when it came to maintaining the highest possible quality of her wines.
0: She was also known for perfecting new innovations and expanding Veuve Clicquot's reach into all corners of the world. Today, her name is synonymous with excellence and she is remembered as the Grand Dame of Champagne.
1: And like Madame Clicot, Yo-Yo Kusama is a trailblazer in her field. She entered the art world at 28 and once said, I promised myself that I would conquer New York and make my name in the world with my passion for the arts and my creative energy.
0: To celebrate the house's new vintage, La Grande Dame 2012, Kusama created a new design for its bottle and gift box that makes smart use of her polka dots to represent champagne bubbles.
1: And as for the wine itself?
0: It expresses Veuve Clicot's love of Pinot Noir, which represents over 90% of the blend. As Madame Clicot said, our black grapes give the finest white wines. It tastes as beautiful as it looks. La Grande Dame is a showcase of the house's excellence.
1: Madame Clicot and Yo Kusama lived 150 years apart, but they still created an unforgettable collaboration. That alone is worthy of a celebration.
0: Well, all right, Michael, we're the luckiest of the lucky because we have Alec Lebrano here to talk to us about his marvelous new memoir, My Place at the Table, which was just published this week, and his beautiful piece in the issue about his unforgettable meal with Julia Child. So welcome, Alec.
2: Thank you very much, Ashley.
0: Michael, do you want to get him started here?
1: It doesn't take much to get Alec started, and that's the great thing about him. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> I'm going to take that as a compliment, Mr. Haney.
1: <laughs> it is a compliment. I just want to say this piece I love it for so many reasons. It brought me to the edge of tears because it combines a few of the things that I love so much. It's in Paris. It's written by you. It's recounting your first meeting, which was also a dinner with Julia Child, and it took place at my favorite restaurant in Paris, and I'm I'm always loath to reveal it, but because it's being revealed here. I'll reveal it. And many people do know it. It's Chez Georges on Rue de May in the second. And where I have spent some of my favorite, I've celebrated many birthdays there and, and important moments in my life. But to have you recount your first meeting and first dinner with Julie Child there in the pages of airmail is beautiful. So that's me blabbering on too long. How old were you when this dinner happened? And what year was it? Set the scene for us.
2: I am utterly useless with dates, but I think it was 1987, so I was 30 something, 30 whatever. But I felt like I was about 15 when I sat down at the table because I, you know, this ghastly shyness, which I'll never shake, sort of caught me by the scruff of my shirt as I was being escorted to the table. And there was a rather formidable looking lady sitting in the corner of the room. And we sat down and we were polite with each other and everything. And as, I'm, as I say, it may sound incredible, but it took me a few seconds until I finally thought to myself, mother of God, this is what do I have to say to Julie Child? Anything with any conversation I make will sound so tinny and useless. And yet we had a language that we both knew, which was new and loathed, a language of a certain type of buttoned up sociability that we both learned as children. And we used that until we couldn't bear it anymore. Then we finally started talking to each other.
1: You used that for about a minute and then it seemed you both, what I love again, you point out like you were both outsiders.
2: She was from California and I was from Connecticut. But what we had a lot in common because she was, she'd gone to Smith College and had not joined it. And I'd gone to Amherst College, two miles away and had an excellent education in a miserable time. So we started off with that and that did us some good but the thing that I was aware of and felt immediately that one of the things that finally allowed me to relax with her and that really I've not seen anyone talk about, I can only imagine what it would have been like to be Julia Child in that family, fancy family in Pasadena. I mean, she was much older than I was. But growing up then when the womenly arts of domestic science and all of this nonsense, and she was a very, very tall woman, a large, tall, large bone, very, very tall woman. And yet, I've never seen, I've never seen anyone really address this. I mean, this, you could almost say that it was a handicap of a certain type. And yet she didn't, she had perfect posture. She didn't crouch. She was fascinating. I mean, she was a captivating person because a lot of people who are not well or comfortable in their own skins have physical tics or or whatever, but she wasn't like that at all. And it was very moving. And I detected that and it made me like
0: her. What kind of an appetite did she have, Alec?
2: Insatiable. <laughs> you
0: know,
2: once the late, the wonderful, the man who organized the dinner was Gregory Usher, a wonderful man from Portland, from Oregon, who founded the Ritz Cooking School, the Escoffier's Cooking School at the Ritz. They ordered the meal and when the food started coming. Julia had no qualms whatsoever about reaching all the way down to the, end of the table with a fork and stabbing something out of somebody else's plate. I mean, she ate and she drank and she ate and she drank, which made me like very even more you know i mean there was no and it was done with gusto and unselfconscious and huge pleasure
0: what was she like as a conversationalist
2: she was interested by politics, she was interested by food, she was reading a sort of a dumpy mystery novel which she forgot and left on the, on the restaurant bench. She was interested by Paris, she was interested by French politics I and mean, she was a formidable, intelligent woman aside from the fact that she was a brilliant cook.
1: And just to, I think, give a slight bit of context here, this was a group dinner party, a group dinner at Chez Georges, but you had that experience that I think some of us have was like, you go to the restaurant and you show up and there's only one other person seated at the So far, the most important person, and you walk in cold, you've never met the person, and there's no one to introduce you, and you just have to sort of start from zero. That's part of the intimidation here, right? Which is just sort of like being dropped in, like, Hi, I'm Alex. You must be Julia. That's such, again, so much of the charm of of, of your voice in this piece.
0: One of the things I love about your book is that these characters, these people we think we know so well, kind of pop in and out of your life and and are part of your story. And tell us a little bit, well, I just want you to share some of your favorite anecdotes from the book or some of the the most fascinating people that we can expect to find as we read it.
2: I think one of the most interesting people I've ever met, actually, was Patricia Highsmith. And I was sent to, she was living in... the Ticino, this Italian speaking part of Switzerland. And I went there with uh, one of the office photographers, the Franco-Vietnamese guy. And it was an epic journey that required getting up really early on a really muggy, hot summer morning. And they'd been negotiating to get the story for weeks. And we got there and... Both of Doug and I were now retired, tired and she, we rang the bell and she opened the, the gate and said, and who the blank are you? And I said, well, I think you know who we are. Who else would we be? And she said, I've changed my mind. I don't want to do this and slammed the door. So I kept ringing and ringing and ringing. Anyway, I finally said to her and she pushed me to my outer limits and I finally said to her, I will not accept you're being this rude to us. We're going to go into the village and have the coffee you should have offered to us and we'll be back here to do the interview in a half an hour to give you time to compose yourself. And when we came back, she was as truculent as she'd been before, but she wanted a pound of flesh for the interview. And so she said she asked me some very personal questions about what was the most humiliating, psychologically deranged thing I'd ever done. And I don't know why, but I told her the truth. And it's only today that I realized that by allowing me to tell that story, she was setting me free. And being set free is a lot of the theme of any of any memoir. I mean, once you put a lot of things that are tender, and dubious out in broad daylight, they lose their power and you you know, I mean, you laugh at them or you find them endearing. It's only when you're sort of clutching them and keeping them in the dark that they have power. And so her asking me to tell this story actually did me a great service.
1: Now you make me wonder, have you, did you Read her subsequent books and see if you showed up or any of your, any of what you admitted was, did she use it as material somehow? I mean, it
2: was actually, as preposterous as this might sound, a certain flirtatiousness between us. When she said to me, you remind me of a woman from Philadelphia who I was very much in love with. And she cackled and everything else. And she said, you know, I wonder what would happen if we went to bed. I wonder who would blank who. And I, I stared off into the middle distance, <laughs> sipped my beer. I think though that, that that the sadism and masochism of unrequited sexual want and unrequited love, which is the, one of the resonating themes of her fiction. She didn't need me for that. she lived out that to the hill before I knocked on her door.
0: This book to me, not only because we love you, Alec, am I saying this, but I do think it goes in the canon of all great memoirs, especially for people who love food, love Paris and love to read about or who value such an honest voice as yours. Like I think what makes this memoir so special is you combine your powers of observation with your nuanced understanding of 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 how people work and how they relate to one another and this incredible expertise that you have in your metier. And it's just like, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. Michael enjoyed it. And I know our listeners are going to love it as well.
2: Thank you so much, Ashley.
1: Alex, before you go, I just want to curl back to Julia Child for a moment. This is maybe a spoiler alert for people who haven't read the piece yet, but you mentioned when you came upon her in the restaurant, she was reading uh, what you call I think a, a crummy, beat up uh, paperback, a mystery, and I love this at the end when you talk about you went back there some time later and the waiter recognized you as the guy who had dinner with the Queen and he walked up to you and he said, Perhaps you could return this book to Mrs. Child You know, she left it behind in the banquet the other night and it turned out to be this John Macdonald mystery from the Cambridge Public Library, as you said, with a with a coupon in it for Lando Lakes Butter and some loose pieces of paper, but one on one of them was a note that she had written to her husband saying, what would you like for dinner tonight, my love? And there was a carefully drawn heart below it with an arrow stuck through it that said, it's the single word, you. Can you just finish the story for us from there?
2: Then she said, I mean, I was so moved by this. And I kept the coupon to the land of like against my next trip to the U.S. and used it. But the persiflage, the deep love between two people who were strange in different ways. The playfulness, the the vivid sexual attraction, the sensuality, it was, I was just astonishingly moved by this. It was an incredibly resonant and beautiful little piece of writing. It was like a a shard of their domestic relationship that I found really astonishingly moving. And I kept those things. I, I, I think I should probably give them to some. I don't know where her papers are. I think they're out in California, but I have them in an envelope and I should probably send them out there because it's such a, it's like a Rosetta Stone. You know I mean? That's a little funny, strange thing that suddenly gave me such a deep insight into the woman.
0: It's such a great story. And there's much more where that came from in Alec's marvelous new book, My Place at the Table, at independent bookstores everywhere. Alec, thank you so much for coming on and for being in our universe. We are always so happy to see you. Before we release you back into the wilds of the Sunset Strip, do you have anything at all you could recommend?
1: Wow, the wilds of the Sunset Strip. I, I, I'm just going to put my leather pants on and do a full Jim Morrison.
0: See you at the Viper Room.
1: <laughs> I do have a few things to recommend, Ashley. First of all, before I get there, did you happen to watch Cruella last weekend? I did not. Mm, I did.
0: Did you go to the movie theater?
1: No, you could watch it on Disney Plus. But we'll wait. we'll wait until you watch it and then we'll discuss, okay?
0: Okay. Okay. Got some
1: great fashion moments. Unbelievable.
0: I don't doubt it. I didn't know I could... Wa- I don't have Disney Plus. Okay. All right. I'll watch it.
1: How do you bribe the children without uh, tuning into Disney Plus?
0: Oh, there are so many other ways, Michael. <laughs> so many
1: other ways. I've got a couple things to recommend. The first is Colson Whitehead who wrote Underground Railroad, which is on uh, Amazon Prime right now, the great adaptation of his novel. I, I was just sort of in a mood to revisit some of his writing. So I picked up a book of his that came out, oh, I think it was like 15, 20 years ago. It's a collection of essays of his about New York. It's called The Colossus of New York. It's kind of his love letters to to the city, sort of a a modern version almost of E.B. White's Here is New York. So I love that.
0: While we're on the subject of Colson Whitehead, can I just make a quick plug for Sag Harbor, if you haven't read that? Please. Yeah. Oh, this is so good. This is one of my favorite summer books ever. It's a novel, a coming-of-age novel that Colson Whitehead published in 2010. And it follows the adventures of a 15-year-old high schooler named Benji Cooper out in Sag Harbor, New York, in the Hamptons. And I guess some would argue that, like Alessandra, that Sag Harbor is not part of the Hamptons, but it totally is. Anyway, such a great novel. It is such a visceral portrait of life in the 80s and a real romp and such a total treat to read. So it's one of my favorite Colson Whitehead books. If you haven't picked it up, it's necessary. And his new novel is coming out in September. It's called Harlem Shuffle. So we can't wait to read that. Hopefully we can get him on the show.
1: Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I highly recommend going back and discovering some of his other writing. You came to him through...
0: Nickel Boys, Underground yeah, Nickel Railroad. Boys. Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, also, I saw this, speaking of books, and if you like I am and you go to The Strand or other places, it's nice to buy used books, but oftentimes what happens with used books is the writer doesn't get royalty from that book because it's only been sold once, right? And you only get it the first time. But there's a group in the UK which is started. It's called Authors Share. And it's a royalty fund set up by two used booksellers, which is going to start to get authors royalties on secondhand books for the first time. So that's kind of cool. Neat little thing coming out of the book world. And Ashley, what would you recommend for us this week?
0: Well, you're probably going to laugh at me, Michael, but I did make my first trip to the movie, something you would never do but I did go to the movie theater.
1: What do you mean something I would never do? I'm going to go to the movie theater.
0: Are you? Of course. Well, Michael, if you're going to the movie theater, we are officially post-pandemic and I love it. Okay, so it was a very rainy Memorial Day weekend here in New York, as you know. So my friend Lydia and I took our kids, we have five kids between us, to go see Dream Horse. Now, if you are going back to the theater for your first time in 16 months, I might not recommend this film, but if you have kids and need to get out of the house, It's actually a really lovely little feel good movie based on the true story of a horse named Dream Alliance, who was a racehorse bred by a bartender in Wales named Jan Vokes. Anyway, it's a really fun feel good film about the love of horses, the sense of community, the whole racing world. We laughed. We cried. It reminded me of why I like to go to see a movie in the theater in the first place.
1: You know what? We're talking about sneaking, uh, going to see a movie in a theater. You know what? Pandemic, lockdown, work from home has changed. Remember the thrill of like sneaking out at lunchtime, maybe with a co-worker and like on a Friday, like, let's go see the opening of... X movie and you'd go to a matinee and you, you sit and then you come back at like three o'clock in the afternoon having watched a movie while you're supposed to be at work?
0: No, Michael, I've never, I've never done that in my whole career and I never will.
1: Okay, goody two shoes. Like <laughs> I, I love how you'll go to like a nudist colony, but like sneaking out to a theater. Well, I'm just here to say that like now in a work from home world, like the thrill of sneaking out to the theater for a lunchtime matinee, it's different, but... Anyway, I guess that the thrill will be going back to the theaters as you and I will discover. Do you like scary movies, suspenseful movies? Sure. This is something like people were wanting me to go see the Quiet Place Part Two. Is that a movie you would see? I won't see stuff. Yeah, like
0: that. I you know normally no, but uh, normally no, I'm not into them. But this movie has gotten great reviews. I do want to see it.
1: Hmm. Even though you're like out there in the woods, you wouldn't feel like creeped
0: out. I'd have to see it at like two o'clock in the afternoon. Okay. You know what's playing right now at Film Forum, Michael? By the way. I think you and I should just skip out on work. If you weren't, if only you were in New York, not LA. And have you seen The Swimming Pool? I love this movie.
1: Yes. Come on.
0: Oh, it's me? so good.
1: Speaking of movies, got a fantastic Great Lives this week by about a woman named Ava Serrani. I had never heard of her before, but I'd known her work and, and, I, and you do too if you love movies. She was living in... Rome in the 60s, and one day she showed up. uh, Took a plane to London in the 60s, walked into the lobby of the the Times of London building, and said, "I've got some photographs. Who do I go to?" And she had no appointment, but for some reason, the paper's picture editor, a man named Norman Hill, agreed to see her. And she showed him some images she had taken of young athletes training for the Olympics. He bought them ran them and they were very popular and she then went back to Rome and she soon developed a specialty for herself shooting and being the photographer on set of movies filming primarily in Rome and over the course of decades she shot everyone from Paul Newman to Jane Fonda, Clint Eastwood, Sean Connery, Burton, Richard Burton, Mia Farrow, even Spielberg, Werner Herzog, Fellini. It, It all began with shooting Mike Nichols, when he was shooting Catch 22 there in Italy. And then she went on to Visconti on Death in Venice and even Bertolucci on last, as she was on the set of Last Tango in Paris. So I guess that you don't maybe know her, but if you Google some of her images, there's a great one I've always loved. And she, one of the things she developed with her subjects was a lot of great trust because she was so she never got in the way and they just loved working with her but there's a great photograph you can look it up and just google her name but she had a very easy rapport with her subjects Charlotte Rampling for instance who she met on the set of the night porter loved her so much that she wrote a poem about her and Paul Newman she got him to pose for her barefoot at his Connecticut home while I was sitting standing there clutching two beers and dressed in this old t-shirt that just says get really stoned on it terrific photographs from the 60s and 70s wonderful life life and you can read about it in this week's issue.
0: Marvelous. Well, thank you for that, Michael. What, a, what an inspiring story. And we'd like to give a special thanks to our sponsor, Vov Clico. Thank you to our partner for this episode, Veuve Clicquot La Grande Dame. To learn more or purchase La Grande Dame 2012, visit Vovclico.com, V-E-U-V-E-C-L-I-C-Q-U-O-T dot com.
1: that note, we also want to say Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randa Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thanks for joining us.